Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while in motion with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some free money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher at Stitcher.com or in the App Store. Download it. It's free. It takes just a few seconds. And then when you register, hit the promo code box and enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that easy. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content as well. Always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at Stitcher.com or in the App Store, free of charge. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. These are voices in your head. These are voices in the mental wilderness. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate your attention. My attention today... Uh, has not been very good attention. I've had a hard time controlling my attention, focusing it, concentrating my attention like a laser on the task at hand. It was one of those days uh, where I didn't feel like I made the kind of progress that I wanted to make. I couldn't focus. I couldn't get my brain under control. I couldn't stop dicking around on the internet. Uh, As such, I did not have the kind of creative output that I was hoping to have. And now I'm feeling slightly agitated. I'm feeling self-critical. And then to top it off, Uh, I got a telephone call from my dad in the middle of it all, and uh, he was wound up, he was excited, he had a lot of questions, uh, and he wanted to know how I'm progressing on my work, on my book, life in general, etc., and uh, the timing of his call on this day, at this moment when my attention seems so scattered uh, and unwieldy and hard to control, uh, you know, it made for a, a kind of a troubling combination, and so now I'm sitting here trying to create a podcast, hoping that I can accomplish at least this much and that in so doing I might ameliorate and uh, possibly even alleviate these feelings of attention related self-doubt and self-loathing. My guest today is Christopher Bea, 
Uh, he's an associate editor at Harper's Magazine and the author of two books. The first is a memoir. It's called The Whole Five Feet. And now his latest offering is a novel. It is his debut. It is called What Happened to Sophie Wilder. And it is available right now from the good people at Tin House Books. So let's do it. Let's not procrastinate. Let's not make unnecessary tangential asides. Let's concentrate together on the task at hand. Let's concentrate together on Christopher Bea. I don't never eat breakfast, but I generally don't eat breakfast. Okay. And I also often like don't eat anything until like well into the day. Like I will not have breakfast and then have like a fairly late lunch. And are you? And you're a morning writer. I'm a morning writer. Okay, so uh, I remember, I, you know, I think this is from a movable feast or something, but Hemingway talks about, like, wanting to, like, you know, write on an empty stomach because he feels like it heightens his senses. Like, does that, do you feel more creative when you're hungry? What I, I, I think for me with writing in the morning, I just want to have done as little else between waking up and starting to write. Like, if I give in to the temptation to just do, like, one email check before I sit down to write, it's going to fuck me up a little bit because it's going to bring me into thinking about other stuff and what I have to do later in the day after the writing's done. So like I can't do it without coffee, but if I could manage to even skip the step of like making coffee and having a cup of coffee, I would just get right from bed, like to my desk and writing. And I think that there's something to the idea of being in close to like a dream state that's a big part of it for me. Yeah. It's not, I also – I used to write late at night. Um, and Which is similar. I mean, yeah, which is a similar thing. And what I would actually do back then is I would, I would get home from work, which was like a 9-to-5 deal, and then I'd have some dinner, and then I'd go to sleep. And I'd sleep from like 7 to – 10 or something like that and then i would wake up and i'd write from like 10 until 3 in the morning and then i'd go back to sleep for a couple hours before going into work and those writing hours from 10 to 3 were the most productive writing times i've ever had in my life the problem is that i it made me crazy yeah um, i don't understand how i have friends who do that they write all night long and you know sleep until noon or whatever it is yeah i don't know i can't live like that i've got to be up with the daylight Right. Well, I wouldn't have even if I could have slept until noon. I, I might have stuck with it. The problem was I still had to get up and go into work in the morning. Oh God! So I, that's why I had like was sticking those like two rounds of sleep in. You know, so I was going to sleep super early in the sense that I would get home and go to sleep at like seven o'clock in the evening. But then I was waking up in the middle of the night. So you're and you can you could do that though. You could. I guess you were tired enough and you had yourself I was on a tired schedule enough, and I was on that schedule that I could go to bed at seven o'clock and. Um, but yeah, so it was like, I don't know. I don't think it was, I mean, I was getting less sleep than I needed, but I don't think it was like exhaustion that made me crazy. I think it was like the, that pattern. Um, just the interruption. Yeah. I don't know. But, but, but the writing was great and, and, and it really was because you're in this sort of like, like liminal state, you know? Well, well yeah. And I mean, I, I just think of the internet too. I mean, if you've got any access to that, I feel like. And the phone, that's the quietest time of the day. I mean, you right. have the most isolation, which is good for the fiction. Yeah, I, the I can't write on a computer. I write longhand in notebooks. And uh, in part, I just can't do it, even if the computer weren't plugged into anything else. And all I had on the computer was a, like, 
word processing program, I have a very hard time writing by like typing and looking at a screen. But the real reason I can't do it is that I'll just be checking my email or going on Twitter or like whatever. It's it's the bane of my existence, the bane of so many people's existence. And do you feel because like you know I have a hard time writing by hand, and I think it might have something to do with the speed of it or something. Like I'm so used to typing fast. Yeah, that's what I really like about it is the speed. Is that it slows you down or that slows me down? I like that I can kind of draw lines through things, um, but they're still there, as opposed to like when you delete something on the computer. Right. I like that the process is all there on the page. Um, I like having subsequent drafts that exist, um, and I like a certain kinds of kind of like physicality. Yeah, like that that tactile, like you're touching, like the ink on the paper. And I like turning pages. Um, so you're not an ebook person either, then. So I'm not an ebook person in the sense that I don't have an e-reader and I don't love doing it myself. However, I am an ebook person in the sense of like thinking it's actually probably great for books. Like I'm not a uh, I'm not a luddite about this stuff, and I don't think like you know that's not really reading or whatever. You know, right? I, I you know I noticed I think my last book came out in. Oh nine. So like this book came out and it's obviously this whole change has gone on in between. Right. So there was a Kindle version of the last book, but, but nobody really read on them at the time. Um, and there had been so many previous attempts to do this that you didn't think that this one was necessarily going to go anywhere. Now, when I see people and tell them about my book, it feels like almost half of them, their immediate responses. Oh, is that on Kindle? Right. And then if I say yes, they'll pull their phone out and they'll buy it right there in front of me. And these are people that if I said no, you know, they would not, by the next time they happen to be in a bookstore, um, like they wouldn't be like, oh, I should buy that book of that guy I ran into and had that conversation with. By then my, my name is out of their heads and they, you know, um, so I actually think that, you know, there's a real... Well, it's nice to have uh, nice to have somebody buy your book right there in front right, of you. While like you're the watching. Amid, yeah, the yeah. Amid, <laughs> I, uh, I love to watch. Yeah, <laughs> and they, the, um, whether they read it is another matter, but you know, that's up. That's on them. That's on them. Yeah, you know? and I just think too, like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you. Like, I think that ebooks, whatever the device, whatever you know, if people are reading and if it's easier for people to carry them around, like I love it when I travel. Like I have a Kindle and oh, totally. I you know, uh, you know I've now finishing up now two weeks on the west coast and uh i packed a bag and half of the bag was books right i packed 10 books i knew i was going to be on a couple of long flights with layovers you know i just and i i read a lot anyway so um if i could this was the first time where i thought next time i go on a trip like this i will I'll have a Kindle yeah. and I'll have 10 books on a Kindle. And, well, and, it, back and it's sort of addictive too. Cause there's, there is that quickness and immediacy. Like you want a book, you can have it immediately. Yeah. Just, you know, you click a button and it's there. So I think I buy more books because of that. Uh, but then there's like the whole issue of buying from Amazon and, you know, I start to get to like this debate going in my head, you know, about what's the right thing to do. And, you know, uh, you know, uh, 15 years ago, everyone was talking about how terrible Barnes and Nobles and uh, Borders were. And now we're like rending our garments because Amazon is putting Borders out of business. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and uh, I just think like, 
I'm not saying that people people who know the business of publishing a lot better than I do have assured me that uh, you know the hegemony of Amazon is bad for me as an author um, and bad for their business models. So I trust them on that. I'm not saying that like, but I think there is a I I, I just. I remember being told this about the chain stores when they were putting the independent stores out of business. And and now people are realizing that the chain stores were actually, you know, pretty good right. them, comparatively. Right. Um, and maybe something else will come along one day uh, and everyone will be like, save Amazon. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, it could happen. It's hard for me to wrap my head around. And, you know, I try my best to do the right thing, but... Um, like you said, people who have a much greater understanding of the industry, you know, tend to have passionate feelings. And I've heard both arguments, actually, but I just, uh, you know, I don't want to screw anything up, you know. Right, but you would buy fewer books if you weren't buying them from Amazon, is that fair to say? Yeah, for yeah. sure, so. you know, so. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Anyhow, speaking of books, I'm fascinated with uh, your memoir and the reading that you did. Uh, this is something that, like, I feel like uh, I wish I would have done. Do you know what I'm saying? I think it's something that a lot of readers and a lot of book people and a lot of writers tell themselves they should do. Right. Like, they should get that big stack and, and just give people, like, a quick understanding of what uh, your memoir was about. So it was about reading the Harvard Classics, which is a 51-volume great book set. That was put together in 1909. Um, so, unlike, you know, a modern library or things like that, um, it does. It hasn't evolved. It hasn't grown at all. It was this set that was put together in this time and place. Um, my interest in it came out of the fact that my grandmother had these books on her shelves, and that at a certain point, I discovered that she had 
read her way through them when I had just sort of assumed a lot of people have them on their shelves as just sort of sort of uh, filler, like encyclopedias. Right. right. Yeah. But she she dropped out of school during the Great Depression, and um, and she'd read these books to help educate herself, which was sort of what they were intended for. Um, so I became very interested in the in in the set and its history. Um, but yeah, but this, so the appeal in terms of reading it also is in this case, like it's overwhelming, obviously how many books there are out there, great books, classic books that one hasn't read, you know, right. In this case, there was a sense that there was this finite canon and you could work your way through it. And at the end be like, I've read the Harvard classics. Um, but I, you know, it goes without saying that there's an awful lot of important stuff that isn't in it. Um, there's also some stuff that like probably doesn't belong there on a certain level. Like or, what? Well, well, I realize as I'm saying that the stuff that in some objective sense in terms of looking at what people consider the canon to be that doesn't belong in there was some of my favorite, uh, s- stuff in the set. Like there, well, there's the autobiography of, uh, Benvenuto Cellini, this Renaissance artist, that was one of the first um, sort of uh, renaissance into Enlightenment era autobiographies. Um, and so it was sort of historically important for that reason. And used to be canonical, but now nobody seems to have read it. Um, and it's it's fascinating. It's just so much fun. The guy, you know, he like hung out with Michelangelo and people like that and in Rome and in Florence. And then he was constantly getting himself into trouble. Um, you know, he stabbed a guy in a street fight and, um, he, uh, whenever he would, he would get exiled back and forth between Florence and Rome. And, and then if he'd been exiled from Rome, then he'd go and make some kind of like gold miniature for the Pope or for one of the cardinals, and he would get back in their good graces, and um, and he's completely apologetic, un- unapologetic, and um, just kind of a badass, um, and it's just so it's fun to read. Okay, so because that was gonna like kind of brings me to my next question is that when you're reading this, these old books, uh, part of my problem with reading a lot of those kinds of things is the accessibility, the language. Like, do you did you have trouble accessing anything? If you're, I mean. You were trying to do all 51 right. books in a year, yeah. which is a book a week, yeah. some of which are pretty long. So yeah. it's a slog, and you had to be disciplined about the actual Yeah, reading. although I've mentioned this in the book. I mean, I mean, you, you probably read more than a book a week. Uh, you know, yeah. or, or before before you had kids. Right. You, you <laughs> I was going to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, a, say, a, a grad, graduate student in literature, that's, you know totally junior varsity a book a week right in fact it was not the as a sort of completest project goes reading 51 books in a year or 51 volumes in a year is not that overwhelming Um, what it is is having so much of your reading life for that year and my reading life is i mean for me it's a big part of my life full stop you know um, it's what, what I'm reading at any given time. It's like what I'm walking around thinking about when I'm out in the world, you know, um, it's what I'm talking about with friends. It's, you know, um, 
I feel like I don't. You make a real. You're making an important choice when you're choosing what book you're going to read next. Right, and I and I also find that like if I'm not reading something or I'm not really engaged with what I'm reading, I, I feel more boring. Totally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't I, have my, my mind feels considerably less vital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, it's deadening to not. I need the excitement that reading something great gives me to feel like fully alive in the world. So you're you're giving up an awful lot when you sign on to a reading project where you're not going to be able to choose a lot of the books you read. And w- and what did you get out of it? I mean, did did you feel? Could you measure in any way the impact? I mean, I'm sure that's what you were trying to sort of assess with the memoir. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I think. I, 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 I got a lot out of it. However, sort of one of the lessons I got out of it is that the great books are always trying to push you back into the world. You know, um, there's a wonderful line from Emerson um, where he says, you know, the, the, the sun shines also today. Um, and he says, um, young men sit in the library reading Cicero or Locke. Uh, not realizing that Cicero and Locke were once young men in the library. Um, you know, he was coming up at a time where America was still very much enthralled to European culture, and there was some idea that you couldn't even have an indigenous American culture. Um, and he, so he thought people were too overwhelmed by the classics of the past, and people had to celebrate what they were doing. And talk about today. a guy who was well-read. I mean, I, you know, just like his... Uh his discipline, his yeah. daily note taking. Yeah. You know, he he was extremely um, diligent about it, <laughs> to yeah, say yeah. the least. You know, um, and there's a very similar idea expressed by Thoreau, um, and in his case, I love this one. He says, uh, he says, we have had enough of hay. Go to grass. You know, meaning like go to the fresh stuff, not to that dried stuff. Right. Um, and and that's a consistent theme in the classics, which is really interesting. I mean, going back to you know Plato's Socratic uh, dialogues, right? Socrates is always talking about how he doesn't actually know anything, but no one else knows anything either. And the w- one piece of wisdom that he has is that he knows that he doesn't know anything, while everyone else thinks they know something. So there's a real. I think if you read. If you read the classics, particularly if you do this, a kind of completist project like this where you really try and read stuff exhaustively with the aim that you are going to come out of it with some kind of encyclopedic knowledge where you're just going to like know more than other people, uh, you're just doing it in an entirely the wrong spirit because um, what they do at their best, I think, or one of the things, I try not to be too like reductive about, you know, they do different things, but is... Um, instill in you a sense of wonder at the world, at the world as it is now, not just at the world in the past or of these great men who wrote these books, but of the world as it exists before you, and a sense of epistemic humility, um, and a sense of even the the limits of like even the possibility of human knowledge, you know, that just how much there is still out there we don't understand. Um, it seemed to me like the big lesson was that there seemed to be pretty finite boundaries to human knowledge about the universe. Well, at the same time, there is a thing in us which wants desperately to know what exists beyond those boundaries. Right. That is never going to be satisfied with that. 
you know, I've been uh, reading a bunch of and doing some writing recently about um, some of the new atheist type writers. Um, like who? Uh, well, in this case, Sam Harris, but his more recent book, uh, The Moral Landscape, which is about science, um, how science can determine human values, as the subtitle of the book goes. Um, Alan de Botton just wrote a book called Religion for Atheists, and this philosopher at Duke named Alex Rosenberg just wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to the Universe. So it's kind of past the Dawkins-Hitchens making the arguments against God and to the next stage of saying, like, okay, we're all atheists here, now what? Um, but and I'm, I'm an atheist myself, but I, I find the scientific materialism that is generally the default kind of philosophical attitude about life um, that most atheists hold deeply unsatisfying. Right. And the thing that I find least satisfying about it is, I mean, Rosenberg in particular explicitly states in his book that everything about the universe is physical. There isn't anything that isn't you know, physical, which is, you know, may well be true. But in addition, that everything about the universe can be understood by humans and, in fact, will be eventually. That basically physics is very close to understanding everything there is to understand. And at some point in the, you know, not too distant future, it will, as he says, become complete. Well, no, I was just reading something the other day, and there was a quote, I think, from Martin Amos where he's like, we're about five Einsteins away, you know, from knowing what we need to know. You know, we have about, you know, in, in the course of human uh, existence and as the generations go by, you need about like five more big geniuses like that to sort of like sort it all out. And it, I sort of read that, and it seems like an offhand comment, but then you start to think about it. You think about how much Einstein figured out. Right, but, 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 but in addition, here, like, this is why I think that sort of horseshit is like – when what Einstein discovered brought all sorts of mystery into the world, right? The Newtonian physicists, they thought they had it all figured out, you know? And then Einstein said, no, actually, on a fundamental level, matter isn't working the way that you think it is. Um, so in a way, it seems like the true breakthroughs and I'm, I'm obviously not a, a physicist, but but it, it seems to me like the true breakthroughs um, create as many questions as they do, like, solve. Right. Um, they sort of break things apart. So yeah. now we've got this issue with the seeming irreconcilability of um, the kind of macro picture of physics and the micro picture of physics of, you know, quantum mechanics and relativity, right? That problem didn't exist before people knew about quantum mechanics and relativity, you know, in a Newtonian world. So, in fact, the, the, the universe in a lot of ways makes less sense now. I'm sure there's someone who actually knows what they're talking about who's going to hear this and say I'm an idiot. But but that that's... Makes sense to me. Whether... whether well, <laughs> I'll, I'll put it in this deeply unsatisfying uh, humanist terms. Um, whether that is actually true as a statement about the history of physics, um, that comports with my kind of philosophy of knowledge about the world. Uh, my sense is that the, the more you know... 
um, the more aware you become of how much you're ignorant of. And um, so when it comes to a project like reading the classics to kind of bring it around, not that I'm, you know, we have to be too linear about this, but um, uh, there, there really was a profound sense of kind of humility that came out of it. Well, I mean, that's, and that's not a bad thing to get. No. You know? And then you were also, um, you know, uh, you were dealing with some health issues or you, yeah. were, you were surrounded and also your aunt. My aunt was my aunt was dying. Your aunt was and, dying and, and you and yourself had been ill, correct? I, so in college, um, I had cancer and I did write about that in the book. And then during the year um, that I was reading the books, that, and this was after my aunt Mimi uh, died, um, I got very sick with Lyme disease. Um, so I was pretty knocked out for a while. And as it happened, um, it got advanced enough that there were some real cognitive problems that crept in. Uh, and for a period, it was, a, it, this was a brief period. I don't want to overstate it, but I, I, uh, I couldn't read. Um, I don't mean I was too sick or tired to read. I mean, I couldn't read words on the page. I couldn't decipher the code. Um, and, that was completely terrifying, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, there is a wonderful line from Pascal that that um, I use as the epigraph to the book that that, that um, uh, is from the Pensee, which are in the classics, and he says, uh, "Man is but a reed, the most humble thing in nature, but he is a thinking reed." Um, so I thought a lot, I mean, that, that, that also having these physical problems will, will, will give you some humility and some sense of human limits. It's like force, well. pers force perspective. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, cause you were raised Catholic. Yes. And then you're now an atheist. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it seems obvious that this was not something you arrived at, uh, flippantly. <laughs> right, right. So you did I'm, some real, you did some real examination. When, when I say that I was raised Catholic, um, lots of people are raised Catholic who probably either don't think much about it one way or another or never actually believe it. Um, uh, when, so I want to make clear, I, I was Catholic. I was a practicing Roman Catholic. Um, Until when? my early adulthood. Okay. I mean, it, it, it really happened in college. But... It didn't happen because I got to college and now there's no one to make me go to mass anymore, so I stopped going to mass. My first two years in college, I went to mass every Sunday. Oh, you did? Okay. Um, it happened because I, you know, and I, and, and, and I was a believing Catholic. Um, and it happened because I stopped believing in it. Um, and what what was it? That's tough. I, I mean, you know, to put it in the religious terms, right? Um, there, I think there is a, you know, believers will tell you that belief comes through the grace of God. Um, you know, so, I mean, it, it was an intellectual process, certainly, but I knew the intellectual arguments against belief in God before I stopped believing, you know, um, there was a real sense that the capacity for belief was withdrawn from me in some way. Um, which is odd because it, <laughs> it's to describe the process of becoming an atheist in like distinctly theistic terms. Like I almost feel like 
when I think about the process of how it happened, I will almost want to say that God hardened my heart. You know, like I want to th- think about it in those terms. Right. Um, that 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 God didn't want me to believe in Him anymore. You know, um, because it did. It 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 did feel like a an intuitive change. Did it have anything to do with the illness? Um, the illness solidified it in the sense that, and it was, and it was blood cancer. Uh, it was lymphoma. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was Hodgkin's lymphoma and, and, uh, you know, they talk about, there are no atheists in uh, a foxhole. Yeah. I feel like I was in the foxhole and it didn't, I didn't feel compelled to say a prayer. And so at that point, I think I had a sense that, you know, I mean, for example, when I was first having doubts, I remember going home one summer in college and going to a priest at my local parish uh, in New York and talking with him about this and saying, I don't really believe. And, you know, I don't want to go to church when I'm back at school and I'll go with my parents this summer because look at upset if I don't go and I sort of don't have a choice, but I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, I'm having these doubts. What should I do about it? And he said, well, so, so don't go. He said, I didn't, I, I went through this in college too. And then, uh, you know, senior year, uh, I came back and a year later I, uh, joined the Jesuits. Um, and I, and you know, other people, I had conversations with other kind of adults who said that they'd been raised Catholic and then they'd sort of stopped practicing when they were in their twenties. And then once they had families, they realized that they wanted their children to be raised in that way. And they went back to the fold, you know, um, I think that there are plenty of practicing Catholic adults who probably had experiences in college that were similar to mine. If only it was just that, like, they moved out from home and they just stopped going and stopped practicing the same way. But then once they sort of got back to the hometown or whatever, they started going again. Um, and I, so the illness, I think, to me, like, solidified for me something that otherwise maybe would have been more of a passing phase. I don't know. And were there books that you were reading that, that helped solidify? Must There must have been something that you yeah, were reading. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot. that I read the uh, the Bertrand Russell book, Why I'm Not a Christian, and a lot of his... I mean, Russell... It, when people talk about you know reading the... Uh, a lot of these new atheist writers. I mean, Russell was as exhaustive and rigorous a kind of uh, demolisher of the classic proofs for the existence of God as one ever needed. There's, you don't need to read anyone after Russell right. in those matters. You know. <laughs> he did the job. Um, he is as, <laughs> as yeah, strong a kind of anti-Christian apologist um, and from, from an intellectual basis, you know. Um, so... I read that. Um, I read Hume. You know, I read... uh, I was reading... I mean, 
I'm always reading a lot of fiction. Um, that's the, but the, I, I'm trying to remember if there were particular books I was reading at the time of the fiction that I was reading that, um, that related to this, but sure. No, I was, I was reading a lot of stuff about it. Well, and, and you know, something you said earlier too, I could think that it touched, it, 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 you touched on a point that, um, makes a lot of sense to me. And it's the, it's the idea that like, once you have this sort of like scientific, uh, understanding of your own atheism, there's this whole other side of it, you know, that isn't articulated as well in a lot of these books, like what to do with the mystery right. of life. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so, uh, I don't know that to me feels like, um, uh, the fresh grass. Right. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so. But I, I also, I think, I think because so much out there is, is fundamentally mysterious. I do think that we come to a lot of these conclusions intuitively, and then we find the kind of rational scaffolding to support them, you yeah. know? So, I mean, I find the arguments of a guy like Russell convincing, uh, but, but I only read them sort of after the fact. You know, so now if I were to be in a conversation with someone who, with a sort of Christian apologist who is well schooled in these kinds of, you know, the proof from design or whatever, um, uh, I feel like I could, I could answer him in those conversations for having read Russell. But the truth was, it wasn't Russell who convinced me. And the truth is that um, I would not be likely to convince this person by, you know, quoting Russell. Yeah, I know. I feel like people, yeah, you're right. I feel like it's some weird intuitive thing, whichever side of the line you fall on. Yeah. And then it's really hard to move a person. I think they have to move themselves if they want to. Right. Right. Which is, which is itself interesting in the sense, I mean, it's interesting in a lot of ways, but, but, but one thing is, you know, it's like to go back to my sense of having the capacity for belief kind of withdrawn from me. Right. If, you know, it's like, um, you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, if you need to believe to have salvation, then why does, why does God not give some people the sort of capacity to believe in him and gives it to other people? Um, so I just, to me, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't emerge on either side from a kind of rational proof. Okay. And it was just, and you say, I mean, it's like when you speak of it, you say it was almost like the capacity to believe was removed from you as if it was, like you said, removed by a third party or removed by God, you know? Right. And so that's, that's why, I mean, it, again, I, I, I recognize there's a paradox in putting it in those terms, but I just, that gets at the general sense of mystery that is still there in me. Yeah. Right. Like I believe, so I would say I don't believe in God, but I believe in the soul. Um, I'm not a, I'm a dualist. I do believe in some kind of like split between, you know, uh, mind and matter. Um, I believe that there is some kind of numinous thing beneath physical existence. Um, I just don't, I find, I actually, there is a particular kind of religious person I find myself much more intellectually compatible with than I do with most atheists. Now, I don't find, I mean, that person isn't the kind of strident, fundamentalist religious person, needless to say. Um, but a person, a writer like Marilyn Robinson, who is right. 
so driven by a sense of mystery of the world and so moved to try and make the effort to understand it, to lavish attention on creation, you know. Um, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm in deep sympathy with a writer like that. Sure, sure. So uh, just to shift gears a little bit and get into Sophie Wilder, like the process of writing uh, the memoir, um, you know, obviously unfolded in all the ways that we just talked about, yeah. you know, as an outgrowth of uh, illness and as an outgrowth of, of, I guess, wanting to understand uh, and find some sort of rootedness in terms of uh, your place in the world and how you view creation, or, yeah. you know, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, talk a little bit about the difference uh, with writing the novel. So there's a lot of the same. I mean, the book involves Catholicism. It involves people who spend a lot of time reading and use books to understand the world. It involves caring for a dying person. Um, so we see some themes. There's a lot, there are a lot of things in the book that um, have parallels in the memoir. Um, the process was, was very different because I was... Was it harder or easier? It was harder. It was harder. The, 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 some of the some of the writing in the whole five feet was emotionally difficult because I was writing about difficult things. Writing particularly about the death of my aunt um, was incredibly hard to do. And then there's all sorts of feelings of uncertainty about whether or not you're even justified doing it. Um, it's that that's a struggle, you know. The struggle uh, with memory, just a sense that like. Um, this wasn't my suffering, you know? What I suffered through in watching her was nothing compared to what she actually suffered through, right? Uh, and now I'm going to take this thing that happened to her and I'm going to write a fucking book about it, you know? Right, yeah. Like, it just... Um, but so the challenge was to, was, to, was to earn that by doing justice to the experience. But I feel like there's a lot of... The problem with the memoir as a form, to me, is that the point of view is such that everything is necessarily about the memoirist, you know? So it's like, you know, you're, if you're like, if you had a parent who you lost when you were very young, it's entirely about the experience of, like, losing a parent when you're young. It's not about, say, what it was like for the other parent to lose their spouse and have this small kid. It's not about if, you know, this person, the parent, you know, died of an illness, what it is like to be young and realize that your life is going to be over and that your kid is just, you know, it's, it's, it's all. And when you write about stuff like that in a novel, you know, you can write it from different points of view. But the, the sort of, the convention of the memoir is that you're writing about personal experience, right? So to write about a loved one's death as a personal experience is, I mean, it's literally self-centered, you know. Um, that w wasn't my experience. That was her experience. And I want to write about what my experience was in watching her go through that. But that experience, you know, 
pales beside what she actually went through. You know? Yeah. So so uh, uh, so anyway, there, there there were times. This is <laughs> this is a long way, a long answer uh, that began with my saying that actually writing this was easier than the uh, than than the novel. I mean, so those were the challenges. Structurally, I had I knew everything that happened during the year. I knew all the books that I read. Um, I had notes from all the reading. The actual process of writing it, I did quite quickly. Um, the novel, you know, there's just all this process of discovery where you don't know what story you want to tell. And Well, I mean, I always say that about, like, historical fiction. You sort of have a built-in structure. Right. But when you're not working with a framework, then, you know, it's sort of like finger-painting in the dark or whatever. Right. You know? And so... When I say that it that for example that the book the novel has all of these thematic elements that were in my life at the time of the memoir, you know, it's not at all as if having written the memoir, I said like, how can I deal with some of these same issues in the form of the novel? You know, so it's so 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 it was only after the fact that I saw any of these parallels. So that wasn't any help to me in the pr- process of figuring out what I was going to do, you know? Well, and what about writing about, you know, characters who are writers and writing about uh, literary Manhattan? And, you know, that feels kind of like going out on a limb a little bit because it's easy, uh, you know, I mean, I, I imagine you must have been thinking, oh, I could get knocked for this. I, I, I knew that I could get knocked for it. You, I mean, you and, had to. And, and in a way, I mean, what I wanted to do was set it up to look like a certain kind of knowing novel about writers in New York and then really to subvert that and then actually have it be to some degree a critique of those kinds of books but also a critique of the mindset I was just talking about which is that everything that happens in the world has to get processed through my kind of like knowing self-centered literary imagination as my material Um, and that what everything is about is how it makes me feel Um, that and just the narcissism, uh, to put it simply, of a lot of a certain kind of like literary culture. Well, and uh, let's talk. I mean, that that brings up an interesting question too. That I've, I've had actually conversations about this with uh, writer friends recently. Is uh, the the element of ego when it comes to writing? Uh, you know, in the literary, especially in the literary vein. Uh, you know, I feel like in popular in the popular imagination, the the artists who are most often caricatured for having these sort of like out of control egos are like the rock star or the the actress or the actor, you know, who's in the hotel suite or whatever the case may be. Um, like, like, how do you size that up, both like as an observer but also as a participant? Because like, there are times when I'm like, you know, God, this is such an act of there's such a strong element of ego in, in in assuming that people would want to read 500 pages of me or right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a, I don't. It's not self-selection isn't the right word, but but I think it takes it does take an ego. It has to, to. do it because it's so hard, you know, and nobody encourages you. You know, the world does not make. <laughs> They're not chanting young, outside your window. Yeah, you know? the, the world does not make like young writers uh feel like they are like waiting for their uh you know arrival on the scene right you know um so you have to like if you have a a particular skill for um you know for a sport you know 
Um, you might develop an ego over time because everyone's telling you what hot shit you are all the time, right? But the truth is that you don't need the ego to develop it because all these people are going to see that you've got this thing that is this commodity that's worth millions and millions of dollars. And they're going to say, you're great, and here's how we're going to develop this, and here's what I'm going to give you, and I'm going to give you this scholarship to this school, and then we're going to spend this time in this gym, and then I'm going to give you this shoe contract, and I'm going to, you know. Um, and again, that might force an ego on you over over time getting told all this stuff but but it didn't require the ego to develop your skills i think a writer has to have an ego to make it because precisely because no one is telling you that stuff um and then how do you temper you know what i'm saying because i feel like you need to strike some sort of balance and reconcile the kind of humility that maybe we were talking about earlier yeah. with the ego that's necessary to get yourself in the chair every day right so i i feel like a lot of writer friends that i have you i don't know if you agree really just swing wildly from being hugely uh egotistical to being completely self-loathing and thinking right. they're incapable of doing it i'm familiar with this yeah <laughs> <laughs> um and and i have some of that um i think the, th the amazing thing about writing, to, my, to me, the best feeling you can ever have as a writer, and, and, and um, I'd be interested to know if you what you think about this, is that feeling where those rare days where something happened on the page that's bigger than you are, that's better than you are. Well, I was going to say something else you said earlier about the, how the best books, when you were reading those, um, the Harvard classics, were the books that are or one of the fundamental strains that you notice throughout them is that they drove people back out into the world and they put people in dialogue uh, with the world. Or is that the right way yeah. of phrasing yeah. it? I mean, there's also Absolutely. there are books that seem to be sort of a, uh, in conversation with themselves and there are books that seem to be in conversation uh, with the reader and with yeah. a, a bigger existence. And I think what you're talking about when you say that something happens on the page that feels bigger yeah. is that sort of thing. Yeah, and but so there's also this sense that whether it's some kind of accident or whether it's dumb luck or whether it's something about um, the formal challenges you were presented, that you just like – that something happened on – that something now exists on the page that came from you uh, – that is better than you are. That's what that's that like funnier than you are, right. or that is more noble than you are, that is more sensitive than you are, uh, that is, you know, whatever it is. And I think that, you know, if you think, if you start to think like you're great for having produced it, that can, that feeds the ego, but there can be a real humility about the process, that the process is capable of producing things, of using you to produce things that are better than you are. And I think that then you you realize that it's about the work and not about you um and i think that's the way that you keep the ego in check maybe yeah well and, and so how do you work and then that i you know i don't mean to sound pretentious but it brings up another hemingway quote that i think i've scribbled down at some point but some days i write better than i can Right. That's yeah. exactly that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. You're just like, holy shit. Like, yeah. you know, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Yeah. Um, and it's almost like you've you've woken up from a, a dream and this stuff is just on the page. And it feels to me, too, like the best moments that I have writing happen when I'm in a, uh, a very long, disciplined stretch of work. 
And the more you can write every day, the more likely you are to have moments like that, which I, you know, it might sound like common sense, but I don't think if you're writing sporadically that you're going to have access to that. Yeah. 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 I mean, when I, I'm going through this period now where, you know, I've, the book just came out and I've been traveling around and I've been, you know, trying to sit down every once in a while with the notebook because I am working on something new. Um, Fiction? And I, I just, yeah, yeah. And I, I realized that I just couldn't, what, what I had to do is just be like, listen, for the next six weeks, this is what I'm doing. I'm not writing. Um, because it just doesn't work that way for me. I can't. I can't pick it up for an hour and then put it down for three days and then, you know, it just doesn't. I have to be in it every day. Right. So I was going to say that's how you work. You're a morning writer seven days a week? Seven days a week and on the weekends I will spend most of the day writing. Yeah. Uh, Happily. Happily. That's how I do. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) If I can get it. This is when I'm really in it, you know. Mm. Um, Yeah. And, uh, and... And then you feel like it doesn't take you that much to get back into it each morning because you've been thinking about it all the time. And then um, that's also when you get the that thing where you've had some plot problem or some 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 issue you can't resolve. Uh, and then you get up from the desk and, and walk away. And in my case, you go into your office job or whatever. And then I'll be taking the the train home. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I didn't even realize... I was thinking about it, and it pops into my head that, you know... This is the answer. They're, they're, they're sisters, or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that's, the, yeah. And... Um, that's reassuring. Like, uh, there's something reassuring about the consistency of that. Like, if you're doing the work on a daily basis, yeah. um, your subconscious will ultimately solve... Yeah issues uh, how well it solves them is up for debate but that's a, that's another i think it was it was amos again who who talked about this he he he, he talked about the difference between being an older writer and being a younger writer and you know being as as a younger writer you've got a certain level of energy you don't necessarily have later but later you have more of a sense of form and all these things and he, but he said the number one thing you get uh over time with experience of having done it a bunch of times is a sense that you're going to figure it out Right, and a sense that sometimes the best thing to do is get up and walk away from the desk uh, instead of sitting there banging your head against it. Right. Well, just yeah, like that confidence is sort of like a it'll come. Yeah. It might take a while. Yeah. But you know, there's no need to panic. Right. Or quit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you, like personally, like where are you from? Um, you know, how did you grow up, et cetera? I grew up in New York. I grew up in Manhattan. Okay. Um, with a twin brother identical twin brother and a sister who's just a year older than us. Um, very tight knit family, still very tight knit family. Uh, my parents are still in Manhattan. I'm in Brooklyn. My brother and his wife are in Brooklyn, just had a baby. Uh, my sister and her husband are in New Jersey, but not far out of the city. Also just had a baby. In this case, it's baby number seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and unbelievable. Um, yeah, I grew up going to Catholic school in Manhattan, and then... What part of town were you in when you were uh, The Upper East Side. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was great. Great kind of, like, um, it's, you know, 
it's lousy for a writer, as they say, but to have the kind of idyllic childhood. I'm not. I'm not writing any uh, uh, out of any uh, childhood trauma or anything like. Yeah, that. no, I have like I have a memoir envy, like a yeah. memoirist envy, a lot right. of times because I had a similar. My parents are still together. We yeah. had a good family. Like they were great, you know. And my parents just just had their fortieth uh, anniversary. They. Um, they met when my mother was a freshman in high school, and my dad was a junior in high school, and started dating. Oh, it's sickening. Got <laughs> when my, my mother was still an undergrad, and wow, yeah. and they're still together and, and happy. They're still together and happy. That's good, though. Yeah. I like to hear stories like yeah. that. I, I do feel because I'm not a hugely sentimental person, but one thing I will say is that when I'm out walking around the city or whatever it is, um, and I see like uh, older people, gray, elderly, especially like a couple and they're like holding hands and walking, I get a little sentimental yeah. about that. You yeah, know? Yeah. There's something moving about that to me. Yeah. Just that like it can happen, you know, people can get along. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's nice to know, I think. Yeah. So what, uh, what kind of child were you? I mean, you, you had a twin and then you had a sister who was essentially almost the exact same age. Right. So you have all these, you know, you have siblings well, yeah. right there uh, at close range. I mean, did you guys all have similar temperaments or were you sort of the, the bookish one while they were more? We had... We were all pretty bookish. I was a, I, w- I was a, maybe a bit more bookish, but and, we were all pretty bookish. And your parents are bookish? My parents are bookish. Okay. My father is a voracious reader um, and reads a lot of fiction. What does he, he and what does he do? Or he's would, a lawyer. Okay. Um, but um, he also has a PhD in sociology. and um, So he's an idiot and, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, uh, my brother is a lawyer. And so my brother is Jim and he, he's a, two minutes older than I am. Um, and my father is Jim. Uh, so he, you know, my brother got the name via, you know, primogenitor and, and my, uh, uh, grandfather is Jim Bea and my great grandfather is Jim Bea and all of the Jim Beas, with the exception of the J- Jimmy Bea, who was just born, um, two months ago to are, your, to my brother, to your brother. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All of the Jim Beas are lawyers. Oh wow! So no my, pressure, kid. My, um, <laughs> but my father did not encourage us towards the law at all. Um, what kind of attorney he, is he, or was he? He is. He does litigation stuff. Oh, okay. He does, you know, business okay. litigation stuff. Um, and uh, my brother went into it because he like truly loves it and finds it interesting he was like the only kid in law school who wasn't there because he couldn't think of something better to do he was actually <laughs> there because he was interested in learning about the law um so we were definitely encouraged to pursue our like intellectual interests um and there were lots of books around and there was a lot of lots of conversations about books and lots of you know, we would go after school to the little neighborhood independent store and uh, and buy books and come home and read. It seems, so, I mean, just to be raised in Manhattan, I've had, you know, several people on the show who had that experience. And I'm from Indiana, so <laughs> I'm, like, deeply fascinated with having an urban, you know, what, what the experience of an urban childhood would be like. And, and now I'm raising my daughter in Los Angeles, which, you know, qualifies. It's, yeah. It seems different to me. I mean, obviously, in um, some ways than the, you know, I think the big thing, I mean, this is, I'm needless to say, not the first person to say this, but this 
about the difference between New York and Los Angeles. If you grow up in Los Angeles, you still have um, a childhood in which you spend a lot of time in the car, which is a very typical American childhood experience. I, if I ever got in a car when I was growing up, I mean, I got in the car a fair amount, but if I ever got in the car, it meant I was going to be in it for at least two hours because it meant that we were driving upstate somewhere or it meant that we were driving out to Long Island. You know, right. There was never, like, running errands in the car during the day. You know, there's, there wasn't, you know, getting driven to school. There was, you know, um, there was a lot of walking and uh, some taking the bus and taking the subway. You know? and, then, and what about ways that it has changed? Like, I feel like the dynamic of the city... Um, particularly with respect to the artistic crowd, uh, you know, has changed in some obvious ways that a lot of people talk about where uh, it's more expensive, uh, right. obviously, than it used to be and harder for people who are in the arts to be able to afford to right. live. So there's been this exodus, and Brooklyn is now right. the de facto literary capital. I mean, do you find that heartbreaking? Do you find it? Well, so I wasn't in the in the arts when I was six so like i actually like when i think of new york in the 80s mm. right what i think about is um i would get mugged sometimes um a lot of stuff was kind of grimy there was ca cars got broken into all the time I, w I was two blocks away from my school and every day you'd pass at least one collection of shattered glass from a window that had been broken um you know i think of these signs that everyone used to have in their cars that no one has anymore that says no radio or even no radio already stolen um <laughs> uh so um those were the conditions that also kept rent low enough that people downtown could be doing all the exciting work so that people were doing downtown we need we need uh, a return right. of violent crime <laughs> um but and if i had been living downtown back then doing you know writing i'm sure i would be nostalgic for that time and wish that i could have still afford the rent there and not be in brooklyn where i am right um but i'm not nostalgic for that new york because the element that affected me of it when i was a kid was that you know, was the that we lived in a city that had a very high crime rate. And you said you got mugged. Yeah, I mean, like you kind of get roughed up a little bit. You know, uh, they'd say run your pockets, and then you'd have to empty your pockets out, and they'd take whatever you had. They'd take the baseball cap you were wearing. You know, um, you know. Sometimes it would the you know the the kids who were doing this were other private school kids who are a couple of years older than you are who were in what we used to refer to as the Park Avenue posse, which is to say <laughs> that they, they were rich kids who were playing at being tough. Sure, yeah. So that that kind of thing may just be like, that's life. You know? I, I was going to say the, not, the feared Park Avenue right, posse. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it wasn't like the menace of the criminal underclass or anything like that. It was, you know... When I in in when I yeah you know, when I talk about getting you know, getting mugged growing up, it was you know kids who certainly did not need to be taking money off of you in order to. They're bullies. They're bullies. Yeah. yeah. So what kind of student were you? I mean, you you, you seem like you must have been a great student when you were in high school. I was a fairly indifferent student actually, because I I, I wanted to read the stuff I was interested in. Um. I 
Were there books right. that you Tensions can remember all over the place? Were there books that you can remember when you were an adolescent that like sort of set your world on fire? And oh yeah, when, when, so when I was in high school, I read a lot of the beat writers, mm. um, and that was huge for me at the time. Um, I remember reading Kerouac. I, I, I remember reading On the Road. I remember very distinctly reading Dharma Bums and the, even the last few pages of it and Desolation Angels and all of that stuff. And I can see how that. Uh, I mean, that fits well into somebody who's Catholic or, uh, right. you know what I'm saying? There's like a there's a strong there's uh, a strong sense of Catholicism in Kerouac's work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, you know, and a lot of them were were based in New York and that and. So yeah, I was like, uh, I, I played sports and stuff like that, and I also played you know video games and whatnot. But I was I was not the kid who wasn't doing his homework because he was playing video games. I was the kid who wasn't doing his homework because he was reading a novel, reading Dharma Bombs. But, right, but um, I still was not doing my homework. But you were doing well. Didn't you go to Princeton? I went to Princeton. So you were yeah. doing well enough to get into Princeton. Uh, yes, I. I uh, I mean, yeah, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't overstate how bad a student I was, but but I was not someone who got jazzed up about school. Wait, um, so did you ever? When I got to college, I got really jazzed up about it. Yeah. I loved um, the literature courses I was taking in college. Who were some of any, any like, notable professors that we um, So my thesis advisor was Joyce Carol Oates. Um, I wrote a you know creative thesis working with her. Um, I also studied with Edmund White there, um, Yusuf Komanyaka and Laurie Sheck. I studied and took poetry workshops with. Um, I I took a tragedy class that was taught by Robert Fagels. That was pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I mean I. I had some I had some great professors definitely. And then in the middle of it all, you have this serious illness. Yeah. Which is an odd. I mean, it's never a good time. But I mean, to be in college, which is you know typically this kind of like heedless existence for most people. Yeah. So it it actually ha- it, you know it happened during my senior year when I was um, writing my my thesis this this novel that I was trying to write that wound up being a novella because I had slightly less time to put into it than I had intended. Um, and what happens at Princeton is in your, in the spring of your senior year, everyone is writing their thesis because every, everyone there does it. Um, and you only take two courses. So everyone is kind of having a blast slash driving themselves nuts on their thesis, depending on how well they did working on it earlier in the year. And then once you turn your thesis in, you're only taking these two other courses and you just basically don't have anything to do and everybody is drunk all the time, basically. Um, Well, what I was doing was I was going, I was getting chemotherapy in New York and then once a week I was getting driven down to Princeton by my mother to sit and have a meeting with Joyce Carol Oates about my writing. And then I would get back in the car and drive back up to New York and stay up there and feel sick. Um, So it was, you know, it was an unusual way to be spending your senior year of college. But, um, but the meetings with Joyce were amazing. And, and I think that uh, she took a little maternal interest in me uh, because of all this. And, you know, we have still have a very good relationship. So, 
And then, you know, in terms of uh, having gone through that experience, and I've, again, I've talked to writers in this show who've dealt with serious illness before, and it's a question that I always like to ask because I, I find it really fascinating, is, um, you know, it obviously gives you some heightened perspective and humility. You learn about your own frailty in a way that's maybe too immediate. But there's a part of me that also thinks um, that perspective is fleeting. Oh, I totally agree. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, I, I imagine this because, like, knock on wood, I haven't had to go through that. But I feel like if I did, um, I would, I, I would be, I would feel more alive because I would be so finely attuned to the possibility of right. it ending soon. Right. But then you get past the illness, and at what point, you know, does the old blindness return? You know, do you know what I'm saying? It, it returns. Sadly, incredibly quickly, I yeah. think. Because I think pr- it's pr- probably the case that it's not really possible to live at that level of attention mm. without becoming completely manic, you know? Um, that uh, everything about life pushes you toward inattention and forgetfulness, I think. Um, but... You know, I have moments where it returns to me, um, and I really try and redouble my efforts to do all of the things I swore I was going to do when I was sick, and I found out I was going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and, and how did you find out? I mean, the doctor just tells you you're, you're in the clear. And well, so what happened was uh, I got diagnosed with lymphoma, and um, it was it was quite advanced. I'd been sick for a while without knowing it. I mean, I knew I was sick. I just didn't know what was wrong with me. Um, but then there's like a couple of things that they do, right? So in the case of lymphoma, there's there's Hodgkin's and there's non-Hodgkin's. And non-Hodgkin's responds much less well to treatment these days than Hodgkin's does. So given how far along I was, right, if it had been non-Hodgkin's, um, it would have killed me. So they got to do a biopsy. And look at the thing and determine which it is. So for, you know, and they don't schedule it right away. <laughs> you know, they say we're going to go in there, you know, in, in a week or whatever. We've got to s- schedule the surgery and then we're going to look it over or whatever. So during that period, you just, you just have no idea, you know. And then they do the biopsy and they know that it's... Uh, that it's uh, Hodgkin's. So now they say, okay, well, if it hasn't gotten into your bone marrow, then you're, okay, you're you, then you've got pretty good odds, you know. But if it has, that's that's very serious, and and uh, we're going to have to, you know, take out some bone marrow and test that, you know. Now already your odds are better than they were before, but there's still this thing, you know. And then they do that, and then you wait, and then you get the results, and in my case, you get the answer you want to hear, which is that you're you're clear for that. Um, now there's still the chance that you start the chemo treatments and you're among that small percentage of people where you don't really respond to it, you know. Um, and you do them and, you, you know, for anyone it takes a couple of weeks. So you just don't, you're not responding right away, but you don't know if that's a bad sign or not or whatever. Um, and then at a certain point they do the scans and they come back and they say, you know, this thing is on the retreat. And at that point, you know, for in my case, I still had 
four months of chemo I had to do and two months of radiation, you know, I had a, a long slog ahead of me that was going to be unpleasant. Um, but I knew that this wasn't going to kill me. Um, but there was a solid, you know, uh, say month and a half. We just don't know. Um, there's a, you know, there's the day where the doctor comes in and tells you, uh, this is what this is. And I don't know anything more than that. All I know is that, uh, you I just did a chest x-ray on you and your chest is full of tumors. That's basically what I know. Mm. Um, and so, and then, you know, in my case, along the way you get, uh, you know, you get these little bits of good news until eventually you get a sense that like, this is going to be all right. Yeah. When you were young, I mean, this, I, I guess youth might, might be good. I mean, obviously you're younger and physically stronger, so it's better to get it, it from that perspective yeah. when you're young, but maybe there's also kind of a, uh, I don't know. I mean, you, you have that, uh, the classic, you know, um, indestructible youth, you know, that right. sense of indestructibility, but obviously that's placed into peril when you find out yeah. that you're ill, Yeah. but maybe you had a better sense of resilience because of that. No. I don't know. I mean, what's interesting about it is I remember friends of mine sort of complimenting me on how well I had handled everything. And I just didn't know how the hell else you're supposed to handle it. Yeah, what are you going to do? Yeah, I just got it. Like, I don't have a choice. So I'm just going to go and do this stuff. And, like, um, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time uh, moping about it. It's true. But I didn't really see what what that would have got me, you know. uh, but it's also true that I was completely fucking terrified. I mean, I don't want to, uh, understate at all the, like, I mean, I really, really, really did not want to die, you know? And I didn't like, um, it was, it was, the whole thing was very traumatic for me. Well, sure. Um, but I seem, I think people looking from the outside, based on what they were saying to me at the time, thought I was like a fairly cool customer about the whole thing. You're like, I was just quietly terrified. Yes, totally. <laughs> totally yeah. Poker face. Well, um, what about, uh, the future? You know, when you look and particularly like your literary future, um, do you have a plan or is it one day at a time, one page at a time? The, 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 the only plan I have right now is to keep writing fiction. So, and and I and I I don't write short stories. I mean, I I try and they're not very good, or else I give up on them, or they turn into novels. So, um, so I wrote a novel when I first got out of college. I, so I wrote this novel that I wrote um, as an undergrad with Joyce. That was a novella. You know, it, 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 I probably got it to about ninety or a hundred pages, um, when it was published as my thesis and it was structured as a novella then. And then Joyce said, well, what are you going to do now? What's the next project you're going to work on? And I said, well, I'm going to try and turn this into a novel. And she said, um, well, you know, it's shaped like a novella. You can't just pad it out into a novel. That's not going to work. You can't just turn it into a novel. I know it's frustrating that you spent this year on this thing and it's not going to be your first novel, but it's just, it isn't. Um, 
Which, like, when Joyce Carlos tells you that, you should listen to it. But, <laughs> yeah. I, but of course I didn't. <laughs> well, you know? Yeah, right. So I spent another year t- turning that into a novel. Um, and then I realized she was right. And then I started something new. And then I spent six years on that. Um, and the thing was a total mess. And nobody wanted to publish it. And But the agent that I got uh, from sending that novel around asked me if I had other ideas, and I, I mentioned this idea of the Harvard Classics, and then she told me I could put a proposal together, and I did in basically the, a matter of weeks, and she sold it um, when I had you know just worked for six years on something I couldn't sell. <laughs> right. um, all of which is just to say that I've been writing fiction for a long time, hmm. but I'm now 32, and this book that came out last month is literally the first piece of fiction that I've published. I didn't publish a short story anywhere. I didn't, you know. Um, so the memoir, which was my first book, was really an anomaly. Uh, and while I was writing the memoir, I was, you know, I was writing reviews and writing essays, and I still do that. I mean, I will continue, I think, to write short nonfiction, to write. I write essays at Harper's where I work. and um, But I think, you know... The, the the thing for me was always to write fiction, and and so the thing I've started working on now is another novel, and um, but beyond that, I don't know. You only I, have so many hours in the day. Yeah, and, and 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 right, and 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 particularly anything book length, you're going to have to spend a couple of years on it, and you know, at least might as well be on the thing you truly love, and the thing I truly love are novels. Well, there you go. Well, I wish you uh, all the best of luck with it. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come talk with me. It's been really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. All right, folks, that's the show. There you go. That's Christopher Bea. Go get his debut novel. It is called What Happened to Sophie Wilder. It is available right now from Tin House Books. You can find Chris on the web at ChristopherBea.com. He's on Twitter at Chris Bea. And you can find him on the Facebook as well. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me something, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, what else? I'm starting to settle down a little bit. Uh, I can feel it. I'm starting to uh, come back into my body. I'm starting to develop a single point of focus. Uh, For the past couple of minutes, I have been staring at my wife's high school softball picture. That's what I have here hanging above my desk. It's actually like a baseball card, and it features my wife in high school in softball attire. And I keep it uh, here in front of me because it makes me laugh. And now I am meditating on it. Please remember that Voltaire's second wife was his own sister's daughter and that Manet died of tertiary syphilis. Uh, That's it for today, you guys. Thank you very much, as always, for tuning in. Thank you uh, for writing those iTunes reviews. Thank you for spreading the word about the show, for blogging about the show, and uh, for foisting the show on unsuspecting passersby. I'll be back again soon with another program. In the meantime, uh, please enjoy yourself. Please uh, stay focused. That's right. That's the theme of today's show. Please remember to maintain focus. Are you focused?